The Bronx has come a long way since the 1970s, but it's found it hard to shake its rough-and-tumble image from those days. A new book includes a collection of dark tales set in the borough, but perhaps strangely, doesn't really reinforce the negative stereotypes about the borough. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Joining me in the studio this morning is S.J. Roseanne. S.J. is a Bronx native, an award-winning mystery writer, and to the editor of the crime anthology, Bronx Noir. S.J., thanks for being here. Oh, George, thanks for having me. Bronx Noir is part of a larger series, right? Yes. Uh, Akashic Books started the series with Brooklyn Noir, and it was such a hit that they decided to move on to other boroughs, other places. They've, they're coming out now with Istanbul Noir, Dublin Noir, but also San Francisco, Chicago, Baltimore, and uh, God knows where else. In French, noir means black. Yes, it does. And and noir specifically refers to the kind of dark fiction where, first of all, it's very atmospheric. Secondly, there is really no way out. It's a an intense kind of crime writing and filmmaking. It's also a very uh, distinct subgenre of filmmaking. Intense is an excellent word to describe it because I was literally on the edge of my seat reading through your book. And I'm so I made glad the, to hear that. Yeah, but I made the mistake of reading it mostly before I went to bed. <laughs> oh, we're so sorry, but not really. These stories are, I thought they were terrific. I picked my contributors very carefully, people who had either grown up in the Bronx or worked here or had some connection with the Bronx institution. And I just let them go. I let them choose their neighborhoods and their context, and I thought they were fabulous. I was so thrilled as they started to come in one by one. Let's take one step back. How did you get chosen to edit this book? Oh, yeah, that was kind of funny. I live in Manhattan, and I had been asked to contribute to Manhattan Noir by Lawrence Block, who edited that, and so I did. And when they took my story, they asked me then to send in a bio, and I sent in a bio, which said I was born and raised in the Bronx because I'm proud of that, and I say that on every bio. And I got an email in about 15 seconds from Johnny Temple, who is the publisher at Akashic Books, saying, I didn't know you were from the Bronx. Do you want to edit Bronx Noir? And I said, oh, wow, oh, wow. So I said yes. And that's how I was chosen to edit this book. As I mentioned at the top of the show, even though the book includes 19 crime-related stories, it doesn't really scare you away from the borough. I was hoping that would be true. What I wanted was for people to read the book, and then if a transfer beam came and picked them up and put them down at a a place in the Bronx, they could look around and say, oh, I've been here. I read that story. I recognize this place. Some of the stories are about places, neighborhoods, that are still uh, dark and and depressing and, and, and down. Some of them are dark stories set in places you wouldn't think of as dark, like the zoo. And some of them actually are kind of funny. Uh, there are three with with uh, with a funny tone and and cheerful endings, so I didn't want people to read the book and have it reinforce that whole image of the Bronx when Jimmy Carter stood on the street corner and cried. That was a long time ago, and the upsurge in the Bronx was a long time coming. But it seems to me it can't help but come, especially now given the real estate pressures in Manhattan. The Bronx is just a subway ride beyond Manhattan. I I got here in, in, I was here very early this morning. I got here in something like 35 minutes from the West Village. When you have that kind, and the building stock up here is so gorgeous, 
Um, I could go on and on. But I think that the Bronx has to have a real renaissance. And I think that I didn't want this book to reinforce that other image. I wanted this book to make people think, oh, I didn't know that was in the Bronx and that and that and that. And I'm, I'm very pleased that I got that mix. Some of the stories in the book take place in locations right around here. We're based on the campus of Fordham University. There's a story that's based over at the Bronx Zoo. And your story, Hot House, takes place right across the street at the Botanical Garden. Yes, I, I, I took the garden myself. I felt a little guilty about it, but I was the editor. And I really wanted to do the garden. And I wanted to do it in winter because it's, first of all, gorgeous in winter. But secondly, the contrast between the greenhouses where it's like a jungle and the outdoors, it just was, was made for an atmospheric piece. And that's that was why I, I did that. Can you read a little from Hot House? I would love to. I'll read the beginning. I'll read the first page or so. A week on the lamb. The beginning, not so bad. In the first day's chilly dusk, a mark handed up his wallet at the flash of cold steel. Blubbering, please don't hurt me, he tried to pull off his wedding ring, too. For that, Kelly punched him, broke his nose. But didn't knife him. Kelly didn't need it, a body. He jumped the prisoner transport at the courthouse. A perforated citizen a mile away might announce he hadn't left the Bronx. Which he'd have done, heading south, heading home, risking the wanted flyers passed to every cop, taped to every cop house in every borough, if he hadn't found the woods. Blubber's overcoat hid his upstate greens until Blubber's cash bought him coveralls and a puffy jacket at a shabby goodwill. Coffee and a Big Mac were on Blubber, too, as Kelly kept moving, just another zombie shuffling through the winter twilight. Don't look at me. I won't look at you. His random shamble brought him up short at a wrought-iron fence. Behind him, on Webster, a wall of brick buildings massed, keeping an eye on the trees jailed inside in case one tried to bolt. You and me, guys. Winter's early dark screened Kelly's vault over. Traffic's roar veiled the scrunch of his steps through leaves, the crack of broken branches. Five nights he slept bivouacked into the roots of a monster oak, blanketed with leaves, mummified in a sleeping bag, and tarp from that sorry goodwill. Five mornings he buried the bag and tarp, left each day through a different gate after the park opened. One guard gave him a squint, peering after with narrowed eyes. He kept away from that gate after that. None of the others even looked up at him, just some fellow who liked a winter morning stroll through the botanical garden. The grubby Bronx streets and the dirty January days hid him in plain sight, his plan until the heat was off. He thought of it that way on purpose, trying to use the cliché to keep warm, because it was cold here. Damn cold, bone cold, eye-watering cold. Colder than in years, the papers said, Front page cold. Popeye's, KFC, Acuchafrito's place. They sold him chicken and café con leche, kept his blood barely moving. Under the pitiless fluorescence and the stares of people with nothing else to do, he didn't stay. The tips of his ears felt scalded. He got used to his toes being numb. This guy is a murderer, but yet you feel for him. You sympathize with him. Yeah, well... I actually wasn't sure who he was when I started, but I knew he wasn't an entirely bad guy. And I knew that whatever he'd done, he'd done not for reasons that you could forgive him for, but for reasons you could understand. I think that uh, that, to me, is the interesting thing about both criminals and non-criminals, is to understand 
why they do what they do. People have such an incredible range of motives for their actions. And I wanted to make him a person who was doomed. Um, as, as There's a classic definition of noir that says a noir story is about a not-so-good man or woman who tries for once to touch something good and fails. And that was what I wanted for Kelly, but he had to be then somebody that it would matter to you that he tried and that he failed. So that was that was where he came from. The most dramatic part of the story takes place at the conservatory over at the yes. garden. Yes. Um, I did some research there uh, in the winter. I love to do research. I do a lot of it, and um, I always drag my friends along. And I did winter research in that building um, when they had the train show on. And it was hard to keep my eye on my research, which had to do with the roof and how it was constructed, because the trains were so fabulous and the, 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 the buildings that they make over there out of trees and branches and stuff. But, yeah, I, I, it takes place in that building, which is an old building recently renovated. And um, the greatest thing that I discovered during the research was the lift that takes you to the catwalk above. And I thought, because it's, it's hidden. You, unless it's moving, you don't know it's there. And I thought, this is a fabulous device, and I have to use it. And that kind of gave me a structure for the whole story. I had to say that I didn't look at the conservatory the same way this morning on my <laughs> way in after reading your story. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> it's unlikely, in fact, that the events in my story could take place the way I have them, but not impossible. What I also have to say about your character is that he certainly did not want to be in the Bronx. He wanted to head back to where he came from, a warmer climate. Right. Um, he came from Florida, and uh, I, had, I had recently come back from Florida myself. A lot of people grow up in the Bronx and try to leave right away. A lot of people in the Bronx talk about going somewhere else. There's a lot of people in Florida retired from the Bronx, but in his case— it had to do with the fact that the Bronx was absolutely accidental to him. He was brought down to the Bronx County Courthouse from the prison upstate and found himself here. Uh, a lot of people find themselves here. Whether they make a good life or not is always the question. There was no way for him to make a good life here. He was just hoping to stay around long enough to go somewhere else. Somebody else in the book who was from the Bronx, got out of the Bronx, and then found herself back in the Bronx was the woman who hated the Bronx. And that yes. story took place on Elder Avenue. Right. That's Rita Lakin's story. Uh, and that's another one where the Bronx plays a mythic role in the character's life. It's not the Bronx. It turns out to be her childhood in the Bronx that she can't escape. And actually, I, I identified with that one a lot because the character of the husband and the life he lived is a lot like the life that my relatives lived in the Bronx when I was a kid. I liked him, and I, I would have been happy to join him in that life the way the character in the story couldn't do. So I was very pleased to have that uh, conflict and that, that tension in the story. Why do you think that's the case, S.J.? People are so proud to say, I was born and raised in the Bronx, but you know what? I'm now no longer living in the Bronx, and that's perfectly okay with me. Yeah, I think there is historically a lack of uh, opportunity in the Bronx for 
careers for advancement in, in a number of ways. There are a couple of universities. There's, there's Fordham. There's Lehman. There was NYU, which moved downtown in, in a move I will never forgive. There are small offices. You know, my dentist was here for many years, uh, doctors, that kind of thing. But there's not a, a lot of corporate culture. There's not a lot of places to live and raise a family in a in a kind of middle class way. There's there's the ritzy part over in Riverdale, and there's the poor parts. The middle class is, is not well represented in the Bronx. And so a lot of people feel like they can't put their full weight down here. That's what I think is going to change. But uh, that that image of the Bronx as someplace to be from. It was also Rita Lakin who said that everybody on earth was either born in the Bronx or wishes they had been. It's interesting what you're talking about here, that lack of opportunity that people see in the Bronx. And that is evident in Rikers Island the story about Rikers Island, Lost and Found, Thomas Bentel's story. Yes, Thomas Bentel. This was a fabulous uh, opportunity and a fabulous find. He came... I wanted somebody to write Rikers Island. Rikers looks closer to Queens, but it is in the Bronx uh, by uh, boundary. And I wanted someone to write from the inside. I know someone who teaches at the creative writing program on Rikers Island, and I asked her if she had a student in her course who could do this. And she said she absolutely did, and she put me in touch with him. It's his first published story, and it is the only story in the book that absolutely sticks to that definition of noir that I gave you before, where the problem with the guy in the story, the problem he has, is a problem he set up in his bad days, and he tries to turn to the good and he can't because his past comes and, and grabs him. It's like that Robert Mitchum movie, Out of the Past. I mean, the story is perfect. And the picture of lack of opportunities, because as he says in the story, he cleans up good. You know, he's he's a college man, but but he's not. He's he's a junkie and a tweaker, and um, he's he's a generally bad guy. So the the vision of a lack of opportunity is more in his head than in reality. He could have become something else. But the impression you get is that because he was in the Bronx, he felt like he couldn't. And I think that was kind of important. I love that story. He kept saying to himself, I don't know how to do anything else but lead this life of crime. Right. And yet he clearly had other talents because he was the kind of con man who, without those other talents, wouldn't have been a successful con man. So if he had just kind of turned turned a little to the side, he would have found another way of life, um, which I'm happy to report the author has found. <laughs> What's also great about the story, of course, is that it takes us inside Rikers Island, a yeah. place that we all hope we don't end up. Right, right. But it's really interesting. You know, Rikers Island is the largest penal colony in the world, be defined as a penal colony and not by the people who run it, but by other people, um, and not a jail or a prison because there are a lot of people there who have not been convicted of a crime they're awaiting trial, and they can't make bail. So they're there, and they're there for months and months. And so it's a whole world, a, a very elaborate world. And yes, it was a very interesting vision of that world. Of course, many of the folks trying to make it here in the Bronx are immigrants, and we're introduced to an illegal Chinese immigrant in the Bronx in one of the stories, that is Terrence Cheng's Gold Mountain, a very interesting story that takes place around Lehman College. 
Yes, and Terrence is a professor at Lehman College, and so I got this kind of cold feeling when I realized you know, who the professor was in the story. This is a terrific story because it gives us a view of the life of this man. And, and Terrence did kind of the same thing I did. He took the bad guy and made him sympathetic. And in his case, when you get to the end of the story, I had to read the story twice hoping that what I'd read wasn't true, that that there was some other explanation because this, it's just chilling. It's a fabulous story. It's a very low-key tone and a beautiful view of this this illegal immigrant who is the guy who delivers your Chinese food. And you don't know who he was before he did that, and you don't know how come he disappeared when he stopped showing up and the next guy starts delivering your Chinese food. This this story, I thought, was just super. And Terrence had never written a short story before. He's got a couple of novels. But I got in touch with him. I had read uh, Sons of Heaven, his uh, early novel, and... When I found out he was he taught in the Bronx, I thought, oh, good. I, that's a connection. I want that man. And uh, this is a, just a terrific story he turned in. And it also allows us to take a story that made headline news and really let our imaginations run wild with it because it takes us to the Golden Venture grounding, that ship that ran aground off Long Island. Yes, yes, yes. It, it starts from that, from the uh, illegal immigrants who poured off that ship, the ones who died, the ones who lived. And it uh, this this delivery man is one of them, but not just anyone. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. I'm joined in the studio this morning by S.J. Roseanne. She is the editor of a new crime anthology called Bronx Noir. The one story in the book that really took me by surprise, the ending really allowed me to say, huh, I did not see that coming, was Rude Awakening. Lawrence Block story oh, set really? in Riverdale. Uh huh. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I thought this woman was the victim. She was not the oh, victim. There you go. Um, he can, he does that. He does that a lot. He 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 just he'll string you along and you'll say, oh, this is really good and this is what a mood and I see what's happening and I you know and then he'll turn it around and he does that sometimes with women characters. Uh, that was I I really um, was quite taken with with that story with the simplicity of it. He's a master. He's been at this so long. There's not a word. There's not an extra image. Everything is there. And you get to the end and really you feel like you're tripped and fell and you have to get up and read it again to see how it was set up. Yeah, that was beautiful. That yeah, was beautiful. don't want to give it away because it's a great story yeah. if someone wants to read it, but it does yeah. have to do with a one night stand that has an ending that really takes you by surprise. Yeah. Women as victims in the book, the women who are really victims in the book are the prostitutes, the Latina yeah. prostitutes that we meet yeah. in the South Bronx, Hunts Point. Yeah, I had two uh, Latino writers give me stories about underage prostitutes, and I thought, gee, you know, this is a, it's an interesting phenomenon they're writing about here. Uh, I took both stories because they were both really good, and I thought, why, why penalize one guy because the other had a similar subject matter? And the stories are different enough. They were unusual stories. Abraham Rodriguez Jr. and uh, Stephen Torres, they were unusual stories, both of them, in their approach to the prostitutes, to these young women, uh, Rodriguez's story is again almost classic, as as this young girl suddenly real who who has been telling herself this life is fine with her suddenly realizes maybe it isn't and tries to do something about it and there's 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 no way. Uh, the Torres story is is different and I don't want to give away the ending of that, but. Uh, it was more elaborate and made it clearer 
where the power is and whose fault this level of poverty and desperation is. And I thought they were both terrific. Yeah, the Torres story really has many layers to it, from police corruption to someone who did something bad trying to turn her life around. Really a lot yeah. involved there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he's a, uh, a a delicate writer. He has a new book coming out, which I would love to tell you the name of, but I don't remember, but it's coming out very soon. Are all of these stories original? All of them, yeah, yeah. I, um, In fact, um, I want to make a little tribute here. The book is dedicated to Grace Paley, who just died, and... Um, I wanted a story from her, and she, Johnny Temple will only use new stories in the uh, original stories in the in the noir series, and I asked Grace Paley for a story, and she said she was she was ill and she couldn't write a new story, and she said, besides, I don't think I could do that for that for a book like that because my childhood in the Bronx was too happy, and I thought that was a great line. Um, now, as it turns out, oh, let me let me <laughs> plug the next book, which will be out God knows when, but um, the exception to the new story rule is the classics. Brooklyn classics uh, is has come out, and um, Bronx Noir 2, which will also be classics, uh, is we have gotten the go-ahead. We're going to do that book, and this will be reprints uh, of stories set in the Bronx by, you know, I want to go back to Edgar Allan Poe, and Grace Paley has a terrific story I want to use for that. So, um, you know, in in in, uh, in fact, we may get a story of hers in in the book Great. after all. But well, I just we'll look to... forward to reading that I, when uh, it comes <laughs> out. I hope so. I hope so. One of the more imaginative stories in this book, Bronx Noir, is the Big Five. Joseph Wallace. He yes. takes us to the Bronx Zoo, and wow, what happens there? Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. And that's another one where you're reading along and, and you think, oh, I can see what's going on here. And you get to the end and you realize you were just wrong. Um, I loved that story. I I picked uh, Joseph Wallace because he is not a Bronx native, but he, in his nonfiction career, is kind of Mr. Natural History. He's written books about the Museum of Natural History. He's written on the Bronx Zoo. He knows this stuff, and I knew he could do the zoo and in a way that nobody else would do it. And that one, I thought, was enormously successful and and, uh, and made you go back and, and reread it. I, I loved that the ending on that one. Without it. giving away the ending, let's just say that this man goes hunting in the Bronx Zoo. First of all, yeah. that's shocking enough, but yeah. of course we get even more shocked later on. Yeah, yeah. It's the whole thing. is was just terrific. And again, he did it in the winter um, for the same reason. He said that, that he's been to the zoo in the winter. It's a totally different place, and he wanted people to see that place. Again, as we <laughs> talked about earlier, it doesn't make you afraid to go to the Bronx. In fact, what it did for me... It made me want to visit these places. It made me want to go to the Bronx Zoo. It made me want to go to the Botanical Garden. Oh, excellent, excellent. I was hoping that was true. I was hoping that people would read um, the the story, uh, Sandra Kitt's story set on City Island and say, I didn't know there was a place like that in the Bronx. I, I was hoping that people would feel the Bronx as this vast, rich place that it is from reading the stories in the book and, and want to experience it for themselves. A couple of the writers in the book were guests on Cityscape in the past. Kevin Baker, the author, he wrote Strawber's Row. He was here to talk about that. We also had him talking about Dreamland, his other uh -huh. book, part of that uh, City of Fire trilogy. And we also had Ed D on the show, a former <gasps> yeah. police detective who wrote The uh, Con Man's Daughter. Right, right. And he also wrote in this book, he takes us to Van Cortlandt Van Park. Van Cortlandt Park, right, right, right. He was great. I said, you know, pick 
an area. I told them all, pick your your area and put a you know dot on the map. And he said, let leave me for last and assign me a place. I can I patrolled the entire Bronx. I can do any place. So, you know, give me something that nobody has has chosen that you want in the book. And in the end, I said, pick one of the big parks, any of the big parks. But I want one of the one of the parks, and that was the one he picked. And I love that's one of the stories that uh, makes you laugh, that keeps you from getting really depressed, and that people will say there's a park that size where you can ride horses in in the Bronx. I, you know, I I didn't know that, so I, I uh, that was terrific that he came through like that. Yeah, that's just yeah. a funny story. No one is killed yeah. in that story. Right, it's right. Just... There's nothing really dark, but but you, you know, the bad guy does get his comeuppance. He certainly <laughs> does. Very comical way. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Baker, who's a great author, he takes yeah. us to Yankee Stadium. The cheers like waves is his story. I asked him to do that because he is writing a history of baseball in New York. And I thought, this is a man who could, he'll, he'll, he can take any era, he can do whatever he wants with baseball. And he agreed to do it. And he gave us this story which, in which Yankee Stadium figures in 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 intrinsically but the book is not about baseball it's not about the the story is not about baseball or the yankees or i it, it's it's such a great use of the stadium i was a little in awe of that so um that was really terrific that that he did it that way it was it's a very oblique dealing with the stadium it's very interesting how the cheers from the stadium are used to mask gunshots. Yeah, which you know, when you think about it, if you if you're right outside the stadium, could work really well because they as soon as as soon as something big happens and there's this huge noise, and then I started thinking what it must be like to live near the stadium and hear this noise the way you you do when you live near the subway and you hear the rumble all the time. It must be a very interesting kind of you know <laughs> intrusion in your day. We mentioned Ed D., who is a former New York City police detective. You have other folks, other writers in the book, who were involved with the police department or the corrections department, right? Uh, Pat Piccarelli, who was a cop. I have Suzanne Chazen, whose husband is a fire lieutenant. But, yeah, Pat Piccarelli was a cop, uh, worked a lot of, did a lot of work in the Bronx, uh, ended up teaching firearms, was retired as the youngest lieutenant, I think, uh, and now is private eye. And he did Arthur Avenue. He did a, I thought, dynamite story uh, about a um, aging mafia don, which I, I just uh, it was very moving, very moving story. And Suzanne uh, writes firefighters. She's been married to a firefighter for many, many years and lived that life. And she wrote again a, a, a moving and a kind of, of chilling story about a firefighter. Uh, really losing his mind. Her story is called Burnout, and this firefighter simply can't get a good night's sleep. His wife kicked him yeah. out, he's living at the firehouse, and he does some pretty nasty things. Yeah, he can't get a good night's sleep, and it becomes an obsession with him, trying to sleep, trying to surround himself with quiet and with with peace. And, and of course, living in a firehouse, you can't do that, whether you, whether it's your shift or not. Um, and and it the entire metaphor of a, of the quiet that he needs becomes really a metaphor for his life and and what's wrong with it and the fact that he has no no mental peace at all. But again, even though he's in the end the bad guy, you develop a sympathy for him. There's a really moving point at which he realizes 
that his wife never actually loved him. He says, like like he says, it was all about the coat. It was because he was a firefighter. That's what she loved. And she never had an idea who he was. And that's sort of his problem all the way through the story. And ultimately, it drives him to, to his own destruction. And I, I really like that understanding of the the guy. And, and again, not not forgiving him for the things he did, but an understanding of what drove him over that edge. This story takes place around Jerome Avenue. What did you do, SJ? Did you take out a map and say, this is where I want these stories to be told? Not exactly. I did have a big map, and I asked people, some people like Joseph Wallace, I asked to do the zoo, and I put a big X on the zoo. Um, But other people I, I asked to pick a street corner, which didn't have to appear in the story, but I wanted a place where they were anchored in geography. And once they did that, I put an X on that street corner, and then if somebody else responded and, and was too close geographically, I told them, no, that it, neighborhood was taken, choose another. Do you have a favorite in the book? Oh, I can't say that. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I like my own because I, I wrote it and I, and I understand it. Um, I, I don't know. I think I would just, you know, take hug them all. The book is Bronx Noir. The editor is S.J. Roseanne. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And when we do Bronx Noir 2, the classics, I'd love to come back. Bronx Noir is out now. It is. It is. Available at your local bookstore, at your local independent, at, you know, your your big bookstore, and online. And the publisher is? Akashic Books. S.J., thanks again. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Remember, you can find past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Jody Abergant. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.